you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome. I got my mojo. To the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. A little radio program all designed to help you get your mojo working in or out of work. And in fact, if you know someone who's doing it tough, send them a link to the show and maybe one of our guests will share some gold that can make a difference and help your friend get back on track and get their mojo working. In the studio, the whole gang is here. Robbo, AP, how are we doing, boys? Doing really well, mate. Just off the fresh off the trampoline, actually. <laughs> that would be like putting a piece of jelly down on the counter. I'm Anna Devenna. I'm also known as the Sleep Muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo radio show. And when they do, they fall asleep instantly. (laughs) You know, Robbo, one of the good things about where our show is at the moment is that we have guests approaching us wanting to be guests on our show, which is nice, isn't it? That's very nice. Saves a lot of legwork, that's for sure. (laughs) Thank you. And our guest this week is one of those guys. Michael Bungay-Stania wrote to me and said, I'd like to be on your program. Now, Michael is the founder and CEO of a company called Box of Crayons, which is a business which helps other businesses to do less good work and more great work. That's a good line. Michael is a successful author. He's written a number of books, and he's also written for Business Insider, Fast Company, Forbes, The Globe, and the Huffington Post, so uh, he knows his stuff. The Huff. All in all, I reckon, looking at that resume, the guy knows his stuff. So all the way from Canada, Michael, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. I am happy to be here. You know, it's it's yesterday here in Canada where I am, but I've still got my mojo working. It's summer, gin and tonics are out, so all is good. So it's beer 30. <laughs> it's beer 30, exactly. <laughs> mate, when, uh, when people meet you, and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? You know, honestly, when people meet me, they normally just go, how do you get to be so good looking? That's, that's where they start. But after they do that, after we have that conversation, we t- I, look, I say a number of things. It depends. If I'm going through customs in America, I say I'm a writer because that's the least thing that's likely to trigger somebody in America throwing me in a jail. But to uh, a normal person, I say, well, look, I run a training company and we're a training company that helps busy managers and leaders coach in 10 minutes or less so they can be better leaders and they can build better teams and they can get better results. So I've got a really narrow focus. And what happens is 90% of people look bored immediately and move off. And then 10% of people, hopefully people listening to the show, get pretty interested and we get into a conversation about it. Why Why 10-minute coaching? Why is 10 minutes an important element of that, Michael? Oh, well, look, for us, we reckon having your managers and leaders be better coaches or be more coach-like, it's just an essential leadership skill. It helps people stay more focused, be more engaged, like their job more, like their team more, get better results. I mean, all that stuff that you care about if you're in business, whether it's a big business or small business. But everybody talks about coaching, but honestly, most people are just flat out too busy. They're like, look, I get up 
up at six o'clock in the morning. I sleep with my phone. I'm on email before I get out of bed. I take the, the phone into the shower with me. I get into work early. I try and get a little bit of work done before the annoying people arrive. They all arrive. I'm pulled to meetings and emails. I work through lunch. I want a nap in the afternoon, but I'm too busy, so I work all the afternoon. I work late. I get home. I bond with the kids, watch TV. Then I do a few more emails before I go to bed, and then I repeat all of that, and I repeat all of that. And somewhere in all of that, they're actually asking people to say, hey, can you add coaching to your list of repertoire, the things you're obliged to do? And most people just go, I don't have time for that. And for us, we're like, let me show you how you can make coaching an everyday, fast, a useful process that helps you and helps those around you with whom you work. You've talked about your coaching process and you've talked about you being a solutions-focused coach Right. What are the principles of being a solutions-focused coach, and what's the opposite of that? Uh, again, that's a good question. I don't know what a, uh, the opposite of that is. But a solutions-focused coach, I mean, it's one of the influences on the Coaching Habit book that I wrote. Um, it's basically saying, look, we are working to a definite outcome. We're not working to try and find some sort of sense of holistic peace. We're not necessarily working to get a sense of a deeper sense of what your values are or your vision is in the world. In the context in which we, we want to make coaching work, which is in organizational life, you've got to be making stuff happen as well as learning and growing from the experience. So for us, that's what this is all about. You want to grow as an individual when you're being coached and you've got to get stuff done as well. You talked about the normal day of a, of a, a leader and I have to say I, I was in a room just recently and the first guy walked in it was three o'clock in the afternoon and he just walked in and went oh and I said how you doing mate and he went oh mate been, been a big week and I went it's three o'clock on a Monday right right I'm kidding you know the second person walked in and he said to her how you doing and she said I'm surviving and the next two walked in and just plonked down their chair and went oh, as if to say <laughs> man it's just good to have a break what are we doing next Mm-hmm. My, my question, I guess, today is your setup was perfect in the, the life of a leader today. And it's so full on from the minute they get up to the minute they go to sleep. What are great coaches doing today that are helping them become great leaders, Michael? What are you observing about the attributes of someone who's actually doing it well? Well, you know, this is, this is old wisdom and you might consider it like old wine in new bottles to carry on our drinking metaphor from earlier on because <laughs> what, what, what we know about what makes an effective leader is simple and difficult. You know, what you do is you care about your people. You get ruthless about what your strategic choices are, which means that you get really good at saying no to stuff and you get good at saying yes to the stuff that really matters. By getting good at saying no to stuff, you're actually getting good at saying no to people because obligations and opportunities and possibilities always come connected with people. So you've got to go, look, here's the impact we want to have in the world. Here's the, I mean, here's the simple model that I sometimes use. Everything you do falls into one of three different buckets. It's either bad work, good work, or great work. Bad work, think of it as the mind-numbing, soul-sucking, life-wasting bureaucracy and that stuff where you're sitting there going, mate, this is my one and precious life and somehow I am doing this. What, What the hell happened here? Good work, job description. So it's productive, it's efficient, it's what your boss wants you to do, it's what your boss's boss wants you to do. But good work is often what keeps you trapped in that cycle of busy work. 
And then great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. So both the stuff that matters to you and the stuff that makes a dent in the universe, that makes a difference out there. And I think what a great leader does, and again, this is simple to talk about, hard to do, is to say, what is your great work? You know, as an individual, as a team, or as a business unit, or as an organization, what's the great work we want to have to do in this world? What's the impact we want to make? Then how do we be ruthlessly focused about that, say yes to that, and say no to the other stuff? And then you have, have the focus, and then the courage, and then the resilience to pursue that and get through all of that. Now... You know, it's easy to, to, to wrap that up in a few quick sound bites. It's hard to have the persistence and the resilience to get through all of that. You you speak a lot about questions and how coaches and leaders could really think about their questioning. And I and I think it's a topic that I don't hear discussed often, not the way you do. Talk me through what a good question is for a leader to ask. Well, the starting point is to realizing and effectively own up to the fact that most managers and leaders are not that great at asking questions. In fact, I'd say it even more bluntly than that. I think most leaders and, and managers are actually advice-giving maniacs <laughs> because you know this experience. <laughs> Somebody comes into your, your cubicle or your office or the boardroom, wherever, and starts telling you what's going on. And after about 15 seconds, even though you've got no real context, you don't really know the people involved, you don't know any of the nuances, you're like, all right, got it. I think, look, stop talking. I, I know exactly what you should be doing. And you're launching into this desire to like tell them stuff like, here's what you need to do. Here's my idea. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And of course, there's a, there's a really useful place for giving advice. Don't get me wrong about that. But what we're trying to do, and this is our definition of coaching, is actually, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit more slowly? And of course, questions are the foundation block for staying curious a little bit longer. So, you know, in the Coaching Habit book, which is you know part of why we've got connected here, I say, look, here are seven great questions that if you have them as a manager and a leader, it will change the way you lead forever. But the truth is, you know, it could be those seven, one of those seven questions. It could be any good, short, open question that is genuinely based on curiosity. That's almost always going to move the conversation forward in a useful way. Do you think curiosity is an attribute that we are actually losing as individuals? Because you hear two people sitting in a cafe and they're, all they're, not, they're not really curious about each other asking questions. All they're really doing is exchanging statements. Mm -hmm. And is that an attribute? So are we losing it? Number two is if it's important, is it a really great attribute for any leader to have? I, well, so good, both good questions. I, I do think a degree of curiosity gets just beaten out of you as the older you get, the less, <laughs> the less valuable it is to be curious sometimes. At least that's how it feels where you're like, look, who has time to be interested in this new stuff? I'm just trying to get through all the old stuff and trying to, to get through my life around that. So honestly, I, I do think that it takes exercise and a degree of discipline to say, how do I stay curious about my world around me? How do I lead with that? Because for sure, you can get into that process of, I'm in a cafe, I'm, I'm talking past you, I'm monologuing, you're monologuing, and we're kind of, <laughs> we're kind of connecting, we're kind of not connecting at all. Um, but I do think that you know, this is a, we live in a complex world, a complex, messy, confusing, what the hell is going on world. If you think you know the answer, you just haven't understood the situation properly. 
So I think part of what curiosity is about is allows you to take the time to read a situation with a little more nuance, a little more grayness rather than black and white, a little bit, there might be more going on here than just my perspective on the situation. And I think you'd be hard pressed not to find leaders who don't have curiosity as one of their leadership skills. It's not the only leadership skill, because honestly, you know, being a senior leader, part of what you need to do is be decisive and make a clear decision and have the courage to make the call. But how do you find the balance between that and also staying curious at the appropriate times? Something I read of yours, you said we should practice starting all our sentences with the word what. What does that mm. do? See what, I, see what I did there, Robbo? Oh, hey, drop what? it in. Oh, I, thought, I thought you were talking about what? the cleaner in the background. What? Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can, I, can I time it well or what? <clears throat> there we go. Um, so I would say don't start all of your sentences with the word what because then it'd be confusing for everybody and all you're doing then is asking questions all the time. However, I do think that if you're asking a question, you want to be really clear about which word you're starting with. And you've basically got three big choices, what, why, and how. Now, how, if you're asking a question that has the word how in the front of it, it tends to be an action-oriented question. It's kind of a how did we get here, how are we going to fix it, how are we going to get this done? So it kind of assumes that you know what the real problem is. We're now getting into the how do we resolve this issue. Why? Now, wh why is a tricky question to ask? I mean, there's a place for it because it can often get into quite a deep understanding of what's going on. But in day-to-day -day conversation, it is really hard to ask the question why without it sounding like a judgment. I mean, if I go, um, Gary, why are you thinking this? It's really hard for that not to sound Gary, why the hell are you thinking this? <laughs> what the hell is going on here? So to get the tone right is really tricky with the, the word, a question starting with the word why. The other thing about the word why is we're often asking it to find out what happened, you know, explain what's going on here. And if you take the stance that we do, which is actually you don't, you don't need to be that interested in the history of it because they already know the history of it and it's not your job to solve all of their problems for them then why becomes just a less useful question. However, what has a much more neutral way of asking the question, and it's much more a way of staying open and curious to what's really going on. So, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no hard and fast rules in any of this, but my bias is to say, look, if you're not sure, try starting a question with the word what, because that's more likely to be take you where you want to go. Do you think there's a perfect sequence of questioning Michael, with it? Is, it? is it a random thing? Is it just about it being curious and you call upon curious, open-ended questions? Or is there actually yeah. a good sequence we should Perfect. think about? Yeah, you know, um, I reckon there's – I can half answer that. In, in that. Obviously, the question you ask depends on the situation you're in and the person with whom you, you know, you're talking. But almost – more time, let's say more times rather than not, there's almost always a great second question to ask. It doesn't matter what your first question is, but if your second question is, and what else, or some variation on that, that's a great second question because here's what I can promise you. The first answer to your question is almost certainly not their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. So, if you want to squeeze the juice out of that question, if you want to make the most of it, if you want to get them thinking, if you want to stay curious, ask a question. And then 
you know, in a genuine curious way, because you want to, you want to be interested. You go, that's, I love that answer. But what else, what else could be going on here? What else are you thinking? What else is the challenge here for you? And you'll have them working and have them thinking and have them exploring this topic at a deeper level. What's your favorite question? Uh, <laughs> is it beer at the moment is, is there another gin and tonic coming? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd fit well in this studio, right, um, mate, let me tell you. So we've got, we've, got seven, we've got seven questions in the book. And so now like I'm, I'm happily child-free, but now when everybody asks me about my, my questions, I'm like, I feel a bit like a parent going, you've got to pick one of your kids. But I'll, I'll give you three that I really like. The, um, the first we've already talked about, the and what else question. You know, in the book we call it the best coaching question in the world, and it's really one that if you're just going to add one question to your repertoire, this can really significantly change the experience of a conversation. I think the one that can be most powerful and save you the most time is the question, and it's number three in the book, what's the real challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? Because... When people start talking, they often don't know what the real problem is. And if you can help them get to the heart of what the challenge is, it means you're actually dealing with and solving the real thing rather than just the first thing. So that can be really powerful. But I think the question that's often the hardest to answer but gets to the kind of – it's like the, the foundation of a relationship or the foundation of a conversation is the question. It's, again, simple to ask but often hard to answer. What do you want? Or, you know, what do you really want? Because so often we find ourselves in conversation or in a situation. And because we haven't got clear on what we really want, it's hard to know how to act. But what I found is that once you get clear on what you really want, the solution often appears right in front of you. It comes on the heels of getting clear on what you really want. That's gold. I think that's gin and tonic Toronto gold there, Robert. <laughs> Cha-ching. A bit of tonic. I'm going to say, no, what's the real challenge for you? That actually is a cracker. That's gold. That, uh, mate, you've just earned yourself another drink. Help yourself. That's perfect. Jeez. You know, I was just in Australia last week, so I've actually got a bottle of Four Pillars Australian gin in my freezer. So I'm come even on. kind of carrying on the Antipodean theme. <laughs> Um, this is going to sound odd that you would have this line of questioning about this topic on a podcast. That's why we like podcasting. We, we like the, the fact that Mojo can cover a wide range of areas. Mm-hmm. Questioning, we've never really done any deep work around questioning. And there's two parts to this question, Michael, is why, why is the scale of answering something on a scale of one to 10 in your mind through coaching and questioning. Why is that a really valuable tool to use? I'm, I'm giving a, a score of one to 10 on, on the value of that. No, no, just, well, wow. I've heard you. The reason I'm, the reason I'm asking the question is because yeah. something that I heard you talk about on your show and yeah. then I actually gave it to somebody who had to, had to have a discussion with somebody and they started with the scale of one to 10 and you said it's a really valuable tool, blah, blah, blah. And then you go, why did you give yourself that score and not something uh, yeah. below that? And I thought that was an absolute ripper. So what I'm endeavoring oh, to do I is st- set I that just, up I to go. That. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's, but it's gold. It's good. It, it, is, it is brilliant. I stole this from, um, oh, God, I can't even remember his name. I think his name was Michael. He's from Yale, but I can't remember his surname. So I'm doing him a great disservice. But this whole... It's a way of getting people motivated. So I go, so Gary, 
How motivated are you on a scale of one to 10 to interview Michael Bungay Stanya from Toronto this morning? And you're like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a four. <laughs> if I'm lucky, you know, I'm trying to be optimistic here. And I'm like, that's great. You're talking yourself so Gary, up, mate. <laughs> you know, tell me, tell me, Gary, why you didn't give yourself a lower number. Yeah. And that's a counterintuitive thing to ask. But if you go that, you start then finding the value in what's going on. So you go, oh, well, you know, Michael's very good looking or so I've heart told, you know, that he's interested he does a nice line in self-deprecation. He has an accent that sounds at times South African or American or British, so we can mock him on three to four different levels. There's all sorts of there's gold here, you know, and, and there's a way that you shift your kind of engagement around by by playing that trick. So not 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 my not my tool, but I think it's a, a beauty. Now I heard you talk about that tool and I gave it to a guy who had to do not a performance review, but just had to do a check-in with the guy. And he yeah. used that tool. And an hour later, he just said, mate, it worked a treat. He said, what a fantastic tool to use. What a great question. So I, I thought that was good. I just wanted to hear you talk Michael about Michael Pantalon. His name's just come to my head, Pantalon, P-A-N-T-A-L-O-N, I think. So if people want to look it up, they can they can find the source of that. But I'm glad I'm glad it's ready. We should have known that because Michael Pantalon's a big fan of our show all the way from Yale. And uh, he's quite often, he's, uh, he's on to us. He wants to come on the show, but uh, we're only running him at three at the moment. So uh, we might be able to sort of talk <laughs> exactly. him and we can't explain why. Why, why, haven't you, why haven't you given him a lower mark though? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. We can't explain it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> we don't want to hurt his feelings. Now, you, you have talked about the Sage of Baltimore, journalist H.L. Mencken, who said, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. I love that and quote, don't you? You said you love that quote. Why? What does that mean in your mind? Just, just talk me through that. Oh, it's because we, we, our brain, our lizard brain, the brain that allows us to survive, <clears throat> the brain that kind of stopped us getting eaten by you know, saber-toothed tigers or whatever, always loves clarity and simplicity over complexity and ambiguity. So we are drawn to those people or those solutions that just feel like that's the thing. That's why we can be suckers for the, you know, just for $180 and three easy payments, you'll be able to blah, blah, blah. That's why people who show up on TV and they're really clear on their point of view and they're really clear on their expertise, even though the science shows that they are wrong more than they're right, we still love them and we still give them credit because that boldness of this is the truth makes one part of our brain just go, oh, that's, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that must, I, I can relax now because I've had it explained to me. The challenge, of course, is that we live in this messy world where there's rarely a really clear, simple answer. And part of our job and part of the power of staying curious a little bit longer is to actually investigate that and nudge it a bit and push it around a bit and see what's really going on. So, you know, I think this is a great quote to avoid going, you know what, if you think you've got that nice, clean, clear, simple answer – odds are that it just might not be the right one. So be suspicious at least. That's good, isn't it? Now, if, if, we, can, if we take that off-ramp and we continue down that road, you talk a lot about learning 
And I want to link this back to what the sage of Baltimore said. How do you coach people to not only learn, but remember? Because that's something you said earlier in the, in the program right. is people, people turn up to conferences, they read books, go to meetings, listen to podcasts, and it's information, information, inf- and we're consuming a lot. However, I've just finished a book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which talked oh, about the that. fact that our, Josh, our Josh me- Fowler, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, big fan of the show. And um, he he talks about the fact that our memories are failing because we don't have to remember anything. And it's pretty interesting yeah. since finishing the book, Michael, how many people have forgotten stuff around right. me. Appointments, things to do, discussions we've had. And I see people come into coaching sessions or when you're giving a speech or whatever with nothing to write on. And you know darn well they're going to consume it and they hope they're going to learn it, but they're going to forget it. How do you, how do you coach people with the work you do, what you've seen, what you've written about? How do you coach people not only learn it, but to be able to recall it, remember it, and then go and use it to turn that ultimately into wisdom? Yeah, well... I mean, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. I can't even remember your name. I know you told me at the start of this interview, but it's it's already gone. <laughs> but but actually, I do have I I do have a suggestion around this. So one of the questions in the book, the learning question, addresses this exactly. On so I appreciate you bringing it up. I I come from I, I come from the point of view that look, if you tell people stuff, they're not going to remember any of it. It's going to go in one ear. It's going to go out the other ear pretty quickly. Even even worse, even if they do stuff, they're barely going to remember what they could have learned from that, what they're taking away from that. The, the, the insight about learning is people only really remember stuff when they have a chance to reflect on what just happened. So here's the learning question, which is this. So what was most useful or most valuable here for you? Simple and powerful. It's a question you can ask at the end of uh, a one-to-one chat. It's a question you can ask your listeners at the end of the show. Great conversation with Michael. We, we kind of went all over the place. If you had to pick one thing that was most useful or most valuable here for you, what would that be? And what you're now doing is you're doing a couple of things. First of all, is you're framing the show as a useful, valuable show. And even though you've got Michael Pantaloon and Joshua Foer as fans, you don't have that many fans. But now you're saying to the few fans you got, actually, this is a useful, valuable show. So that's a framing of the experience. Then you're saying to them, tell me what was most useful and most valuable for you. And now they extract the value. So who knows? Is it the and what else question? Is it the learning question? Is it the is it the gin and tonic recommendations? Who knows what people will take from this? And if you get to hear from him, if you say, and tweet what was most useful or most valuable for you on the hashtag The Mojo Show, um, now you get to see what was most useful and most valuable. And you go, I don't know, everybody seemed to like the gin and tonic recommendations. Let's just make that an, uh, a section of what we do. We're going to do a gin and tonic per show, different gin, different tonic, different kind of lemon or lime. And you actually get to alter and get the feedback and adjust based on that. So that learning question, what was most useful or most valuable here for you, can have a kind of triple play in its effect. Is that how you coach people to create more learning opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one of one of the principles of coaching that we have is, and it will sound provocative and a bit contradictory, is to be lazy. It's like stop doing the work for the other person, allow them the space to do the thinking and to do the learning. So you know, when I'm working with somebody, or even you know, with my team, I'll have a 
just before I got on the line here, I had a, an evening call with my head of sales and we chatted about some stuff. And as I always do, I say, so Shannon, what was most useful here for you? And she'll give me that piece of feedback and she's learning herself and I'm learning as well as part of that. There are a lot of people who are stuck right now, Michael, and I think it's it's a term I hear a lot from boards that get stuck, people get stuck in lots of different ways. What are your favourite questions to help somebody get unstuck? Well, I tried what the hell is wrong with you and that just doesn't work that well. So I tried that in the studio know, it, as well it, with Robbo. It didn't have any, didn't fly. didn't go down real well with my wife either. So it, it, it depends on the situation. You know, it, it depends on where they're at and, and what's going on. But what I, te- I mean, I have these few questions that I rely on heavily, so I'll tell you some of them. One is I'll ask them what's on, what's on your mind? So if they're feeling stuck, I'll just go, so what's on your mind? Because it's so easy for me to project, look at you and go, yeah, Gary, I know I, it's obvious what he's stuck on. It's the, it's the weight loss issue. I mean, honestly, that's clear. And you kind of get into your head about what's really going on about that. And you're not giving the other person the opportunity to have that conversation. So a starting point is to go, so you know, what's on your mind? And that allows them to put a light on the thing that they might be wrestling with. And then often I'm like, so if, if that's what's on your mind, what, what do you think the real challenge is here for you? And actually how I ask that question, I mean, you've heard me talk about it before, but I can deconstruct it a bit because it matters. I don't ask, so what's the challenge here? Because that's an okay question, but it's a bit high level and it's a bit abstract. As soon as I add the word real, what's the real challenge here? It becomes more powerful because it invites them to say, look, this, I know there's a number of things going on, but... Out of all of those, what's the real challenge? But then even more, it says, what's the real challenge here for you? So, so Gary, I could have said to you, okay, what's on your mind? And you go, honestly, working with Robbo, it's a nightmare. And I go, okay, I get that. What's the real challenge here for you? And what that does is it says, look, I know there's a thousand things that's, that, that are wrong with Robbo, obviously, but I'm interested not in Robbo, but I'm actually interested in what's the challenge for you in dealing with Robbo. So it puts the spotlight on the person I'm talking to, not on, the, on where the problem is. And then that makes it a more personal conversation about how are you going to wrestle with this situation. And, and that combination, you know, what's on your mind? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? All right. And what else? What else is a challenge here? Right. And what else? What else is? Okay. So what's the real challenge here for you? That combination of questions can actually be really powerful in helping people get a new light on what they're wrestling with. Is that also a process, Michael, that can help people through the grey zone? And what I mean the grey zone is you write and you've spoken about goal setting and there's all these different processes. I'm sure you get your own process for goal setting. But say I sit down, you're coaching me. I know what I want. I can see it, I've visualized it, I've got the dream, I've got the goal, I've got it written down. I've got every good intention, but then I step into the grey zone where it never happens (laughs) and I just don't get there. With your experience as a coach and your questioning, how how do you help people through that grey zone? Well, that's a a big question and so there's a number of different things that you could try out around it. One of it which the science tells us is actually you want to spend less time visualizing your outcome and visualizing success because if you spend too much time there, kind of you trick your body into thinking it's already happened and it actually lessens your motivation. So this whole idea of kind of vision boards and the like, the science would say 
they, they don't actually work that well because your body goes, yeah, look, who needs a house? I've got a picture of a house. That's almost the same. That's what my brain thinks. So I can just relax about it. What you want to do is once you get a sense of what that outcome is, your focus wants to be on the process that gets you there. Because you don't get to control the outcome ever. You only get to control the process. So I go, so, so that can be a shift immediately to go, stop worrying about the outcome. Go, how do you focus on the process as best as you can? And then I, you know, it depends, of course, but part of the wisdom that comes to mind is comes from a guy called David Allen. Now, David Allen, who is incidentally a big fan of the show, or so I've heard, um, he wrote a book called Getting Things Done. GTD, you know it well. And one of the things I love about David's work is um, – because what people take away about it is all about the productivity piece. It's like, how do you deal with your inbox and, and the like? But there's a lot more to it than that. And um, one of the things that he says is, look, you can't do a project. You can only do the next step. So one of the things that he would say when you're feeling stuck, when you're procrastinating, is to look at what you're struggling with and reduce it down to the simplest next step that you can take. And, you know, he'll say something like, you know, that can be as simple as I need to look up Robbo's email so I can drop him an email. That's this very small next step that could get you moving on the challenge. Because once you've got a small step, you've got a little bit of momentum. And then you take another small step and now you're really picking up momentum. And trying to do the big thing can be overwhelming and crushing. It's like, okay, you know. These are all cliches, I know, but it's like every journey start, every journey about 10,000 miles starts with a single step. You've got to find your single step. You talked about success and visualizing success. How, do you, how does Michael know that he's been successful? Like how, how do you personally measure success? Part of it, so I'll give you an example that's, that still feels fresh to me, although it's, it's a couple of years old now. So when the coaching habit book, when I was writing the coaching habit book, I spent three years pitching it to my publisher. I had a New York publisher at the time trying to get them to publish this book. And they just, they just would not be interested in it. <laughs> and they're like, ah, we kind of, we love you, Michael. We just don't love you. We like that. We just don't like the book that much. So after three years, I kind of got to a point where like, damn it. You know, it's like, either, it's either a yes or a no. It can't be a maybe if you just tweak this anymore. And they said no. And that was honestly heartbreaking because my previous book called Do More Great Work had sold, you know, like 100,000 copies with them. So it had done pretty well. Um, I was like, ah, oh, I'm kind of gutted that you haven't, you know, bet on the man rather than bet on the book. But anyway, it turned out to be an amazingly liberating experience because I was like, okay, I'm self-publishing. But I said to myself, look, self-publishing, it's a mugs game. You know, there's a bit, you know, there's 2,000 books launched every 25 minutes. Um my commitment, and this is how I measured success, was I want to publish this book as if I was a professional so that I can get to the end of the process of publishing it and then marketing it for a year and go, I did it. I did all I could. You know, I tried a bunch of stuff. I didn't half-ass it, but I was kind of fully committed to it. And then we'll see what happens. And we did that, and you know, luckily for us, or whatever for us, the book turned out to be a great success. Sold two hundred thousand copies in its first year, became number one coaching book, all that good stuff. And I was totally thrilled by all of that. And 
it was never my measure of success because honestly, I tried. I mean, Gary, I, at one stage I'm like, it would be a success if I sold, I don't know, 10,000 books. And then I'm like, I don't know, is that a Maybe, okay, 20,000 books. No, that's too, okay, 2,000. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many. You know, it turns out nobody knows how to sell books. I mean, publishers don't know how to sell books. Most of their, most of their books sell less than 1,000 copies. Nobody knows how to sell books. So, yeah, 93% of published books sell less than 1,000 copies in their first year. That's what I've heard. So part of what I try and do is I try and get clear on the fundamentals that make me happy. So, you know, running my company, it's like I want to work with people who I'm thrilled to work with. I want to, um, you know, we don't really set financial goals, but we do try and set goals around impact and, and, and stretching for impact. Um, and then there's a, a question of having the courage to commit to uh, the process and to do it in accordance to our values. So I know this is all sounding very touchy-feely, you know, hippie, coachy-like, but that's how I measure success. That's what makes for a good life for me. Impact's an interesting word. Who, who or what is an event or a person that sometime impacted your life? Like, is it an event or is it a person that you can remember when, you know what, that did have a big impact on me as a man? Well, there are, there are a couple of moments that have, have made a difference. When I was 13 or 14, I was at high school, and my dad is English, and he actually grew up at Oxford and um, said, and so I was like, my, my, my Latin teacher, because I learned Latin for a number of years, which is <laughs> not one of my smartest moves, um, but my, my Latin teacher, you know, I'm age 14, he goes, so Michael, what do you want to do after high school? And I'd given it exactly zero minutes thought. So I said to him, I think I want to go to Oxford University because that's kind of all I knew. That's where my dad went to and I hadn't really thought about other universities. And uh, Peter Lennox is the guy's name, went, well, you'll have to be a Rhodes Scholar for that. And I was like, okay, noted. I'll, I don't know what that means, but I'll try and be a road scholar. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it was one of those moments because, because you know, twenty uh, ten years later, I became a road scholar and going to, and that did a couple of things. It, it meant that I didn't become a lawyer because I did an arts law degree at ANU, and that was already going badly. I was I was actually finishing my law degree, being sued by one of my law lecturers for defamation. So. That wasn't going to be a successful career, but it saved me from trying to figure that out. And I moved to England and I met my wife and we've now been married for 25 years. So that was a key moment that made a difference. And then there's one other moment, and I think this speaks to the power of speaking to what you see in somebody. It was one of my, it was my first boss, a guy called Dave Allen. And at one stage, I can't remember the context but Dave just said to me, Michael, I really see you as a force for good in this world. And it was just like a real clarion call around exactly that's how I want to show up in this world. I want to be a force for good. And, it, it you know, it, it, one of those throwaway lines that I'm sure Dave has no memory of, of mentioning at all because it was a throwaway line. But, gosh, you know, it, it, it really struck me. And uh, it's one of those things that as, as, you know, folks listening in and they're thinking about the impact they can have in the world, these casual moments of recognition and praise 
which can mean so little to us because we're like, you know, I just I just caught it as I saw it, can mm. really land deeply in people's in people's minds and hearts. Particularly important with children, isn't it? I mean, we we have these throwaway things we say around children, but they can carry that for decades. Now, I don't have children of my own, but I'm doing my best to corrupt my brother's children, so I'm trying to do that with them. But it's difficult. They actually live in Canberra, so it's a it's a remote act, <laughs> which we can tell by your accent. Um, <laughs> Mate, it's in, it's interesting when you talk to people, successful authors, public profile, doing great work, people assume that you have everything figured out. What's something that Michael <laughs> doesn't have figured out yet? Like what are you curious on that you, you don't have sorted that you are working on now? No, no, I, I've got it all figured out. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Au contraire, my friend. I have it sorted. <laughs> Au contraire, exactly. <laughs> Apart from my French accent. Apart from that. <laughs> Mate, you know, the answer is, as, as, as everybody's listening, they know this in their boats. It's like we're all fighting our own battles. We've all got stuff that we're trying to, to figure out. I mean, um, you know, so my company, Box of Crayons, because of the success of the book, is growing. It's, it's doubled in size last year. It'll it'll almost double in size again this year. So suddenly I've gone from a small company to a, a much bigger company. And I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a CEO of, of a company of this size. And honestly, I'm like stumbling around in the dark going, what the hell is going on here? Um, and uh, I quite like not having it figured out. I mean, that just means I'm on my learning edge. Um, if I had it all figured out, it would honestly be a little bit boring. Um, but, oh yeah, I mean, it's like apart from, you know, how to show up as a better husband, how to show up as a better boss, how to write better books, how to, apart from everything, I've got it all figured out. <laughs> Here's a what question that you are familiar with, but I'd like your take on it. What are you taking a stand against? So here's my person, the personal way I talk about my mission, the vision, the impact I want to have in the world. And, and I've got a kind of codified language, so here's how it means to me. I'd like to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. So here's why I like that phrase. I know it won't mean much to, to most a lot of people listening in, but for me, the possibility virus means um, – something that needs to spread without me in the center of it. So it's about kind of putting good stuff out into the world. But at the heart of possibilities is the insight that I think we are to live a adult life. You need to take responsibility for the choices you have. I think lots of us opt out of the courage that's required to step up and make the hard choices in our life. And I think if we were braver and we're willing to step into the ambiguity and the anxiety that making those choices that will sometimes bring, we get to show up in a bigger, better, more generous, more vulnerable, all of that sort of stuff world. So my stand would be about, at the heart of it, um, people not taking responsibility for their own freedom. So I just want to camp that. I'm mindful of your time, so I've got a couple of quick questions to ask you. But I just want to put the indicator on, Robbo. Just take the big red bus off this off ramp if you don't mind. Very quickly. <laughs> you you talked about possibilities, and I love that word because I believe that we should be raising children to be princes or princesses of possibility. Do that, and they could make their way in anything they do. To do that, we have to get uncomfortable and. 
it's now this thing in resilience and grit that by being uncomfortable, by embracing discomfort, we grow. And it's the only way we can grow. In Michael's world, in the next little while, what's your goal for getting uncomfortable? What's your goal for discomfort in the months ahead? Well, we're, I mean, we have a, I have a very specific thing to point out. We are trying to reinvent our entire business model at Box of Crayons. So there's that. <laughs> um, and that's, that's like I'm kind of you know, excited and kind of have you know, clenched buttocks at the same time. <laughs> I think about what that, <laughs> that involves. So there's that. And then, you know, on a personal level to, to get there. So my wife retired uh, a year ago. Um, and so she has this awesome retired life that she's shaping and crafting for herself. At the same time, my life, I've just turned 50. My life is kind of picking up as this CEO of this growing company. And then, so the other challenge for us is to lean into uh, how do we live together and work together and be together when our lives have different rhythms and they've had more different rhythms than they've ever had before and trying to figure that one out. I've seen you write about habits and just a couple of quick things to finish us up. What's yeah, a sure. new habit that you have introduced in, say, the last, I don't know, 100 days that's had a profound impact on your world. Have you introduced any new habits? Yeah. Um, the habit that I've re-re-reintroduced, because it's a, it's, a, it's a horse I've fallen off many times, is journaling. So I, I've tried, you know, paper diaries and calendars and journals and stuff like that. But I found an app that is I'm actually really liking. It's called Day One. And it kind of works across all my gadgets. So it's on my laptop. It's on my main computer. It's on my phone. And um, what I do is uh, at the start of each day, I answer daily questions. So basically I have five questions to answer and I just give myself a score out of five um, to sort of go, how am I doing at um, living the life that I'm striving for? So question one is, did I tell Marcella the hard thing? So Marcella's my wife. Uh, no, don't tell myself the the most important thing. So, you know, because I'm an Australian male, I specialize in not communicating with my spouse. Um, <laughs> and so question number one, simply, of all the things that are going on, did I tell myself the, the most important thing? The second thing was, did I sweat? You know, so did I find some form of exercise? Question number three is, um, did I make the hard decision? Because, you know, one of the things that I will do as a CEO is go, why don't I do the 98 other things that will avoid me taking on the hard thing that I have to actually uh, focus on and figure out? Um, question number four is, did I reach out to somebody and say hello? So, you know, one of the perils of our overconnected life is actually loneliness. Because you're like, ah, I kind of watch Robbo on Facebook. That's almost the same as having a conversation with him. Um, so did I reach out to somebody say hello? And then the fifth question is, did I do something creative? And honestly, I, I average about two to th two, two and a half, three out of five when I'm answering those questions. I don't I definitely don't do all of those every day. But what I'm finding is answering those questions keeps my the, the life I, the life I'm trying to have and the person I'm trying to be top of mind. And I think it's making a difference. It's gold. I will find that app and put a link to it in the show notes for us, Michael. It's really nice. And the last question, we we quite often talk about uh, Hollywood actor and movie star Bruce Lee, the martial artist from back in the day. Oh, that and Bruce Lee. Had, yeah, and he had a quote and it said, 
uh, it's not the daily addition, but the daily subtraction. Hack away at the unessentials. Is there something you've taken out of your world of recent times that's given your mojo more room to move? Like, is there something you've eliminated from your world that's had a profound effect? Yeah, that's a good question. It's actually um, something I, I work at fairly frequently. Like I would say once every two months, I would give a piece of clothing away or two. So I just keep, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an accumulator of stuff. So on a, just on a physical level, there's, there's stuff I give away and remove all the time. But part of um, kind of connected to the business model, the conversation that we're having is we're stepping away from some current partnerships we have at Box of Crayons. And honestly, it's like just these awkward, difficult, miserable conversations because it's so be they're not they're not terrible. They're just not you know the Derek Sivers quote, which is if it's not a hell yes, it should be a no. And there are just a couple of of partnerships that we have which, you know, they just don't quite make it into the hell yes category. So we're in that process of saying no to them so that we can continue to focus on what really matters for us at Box of Crayons. You know, horrible. I mean, I just, I'm like, this is miserable for me to do and it is important for me to do at the same time. Well, mate, I, and I'm sure you find the same thing. The thing I love and we are loving about podcasts is the there's not so much friendships, the relationships we're building with our guests because you get to spend a solid hour, you chat, you dig into some stuff, you learn about each other, have a few right. laughs. And we, we really, in the last, we've had five seasons, we've really built some wonderful relationships with people. And I feel as though it'd be very easy for us to catch up for a G&T or a beer next time you're in Sydney. Okay. So um, that, could, that could be the case. It's been a real treat, Michael. I I do enjoy your energy. I enjoy the philosophies and the thought that goes into what you do. You don't waste words. And uh, it's been a real treat, mate. So I'm very, very happy we've connected and um, appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me along. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Canada's becoming a bit of a theme on this show this year. Yes, and I believe we have a guest coming up in the not-too-distant future who is also uh, an Australian but living in Canada. So there is a bit of a theme to it. So hello to all our Canadian friends. Absolutely. Especially the women's rugby union team. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's a big listener. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. Now, do you like Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, do you know what? I don't, yes. Yeah, short answer, yes. Put it that way. <laughs> I must say, I am a bit of a fan. I don't have a man crush on him, but I am a bit of a fan. And not. I think, look, I think he's a brilliant actor, but I also like his approach to life. And his production company is called JKL, which stands for Just Keep Living. Ooh, and when nice. you look at the guy, his office is an Airstream caravan. He loves his biking, his surfing, his working out. He's renowned for getting around with no shirt on. I don't know. I, I think this guy is a. I think he lives in Maui, doesn't he? Does he? I don't know. You seem to have. You seem to have all the info on him. I think he spends some time with Willie Nelson. Nice. If you if you get my meaning. So uh, now Matthew McConaughey won an Academy Oscar for Best Actor for his performance, which was brilliant in the Dallas Buyers Club. Right. His speech 
was terrific and I have watched it a number of times and I thought I'd share it on the show today. And he talks about the three things he needs in his day and I'm not going to give them away. However, all I'm going to say to our listeners, us included, is have a listen to Matthew McConaughey's closing speech. Have a think about who is your hero and grab your journal. Talk to yourself in your journal about who your hero is. Then once you're done writing, pick out one thing, just one simple thing that you can do immediately to start your chase of your hero. I think this is a very profound piece. We're going to close with Matthew McConaughey from the Oscars Best Actors Acceptance Speech, and that'll take us out. So we're going to close with a bit of Matthew McConaughey, his speech from the 2014 Oscars. There's a few things, about three things to my account that I need each day. Um, One of them is something to look up to, another is something to look forward to, and another is someone to chase. Now, first off, I want to thank God, because that's who I look up to. He's graced my life with opportunities that I know are not of my hand or any other human hand. Um, He has shown me that... uh, It's a scientific fact that gratitude reciprocates. Um, In the words of the late Charlie Lawton, who said, when you got God, you got a friend, and that friend is you. Um, To my family, that's who and what I look forward to. To my father, who I know is up there right now, with a big pot of gumbo, He's got a lemon meringue pie over there. He's probably in his underwear, and he's got a cold can of Miller Lite, and he's dancing right now. (laughs) To you, Dad, you taught me what it means to be a man. To my mother, who's here tonight, who taught me and my two older brothers demanded that we respect ourselves. And what we in turn learned was then we were better able to respect others. Thank you for that, Mama. To my wife, Camilla, and my kids, Levi, Vita, and Mr. Stone, The courage and significance you give me every day I go out the door is unparalleled. You are the four people in my life that I want to make the most proud of me. Thank you. And to um, my hero, that's who I chase. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know. I got to think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later. This person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25, 10 years later. That same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. So to any of us, whatever those things are, whatever it is we look up to, whatever it is we look forward to and whoever it is we're chasing. To that I say amen. To that I say all right, all right, all right. And to that I say just keep living, huh? Thank you. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com.
Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.